Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode involved Dr. Judy Forrester and Dr. Stephen Passmore on the topic of telehealth and practice during a pandemic. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Greg Kochak. Welcome to the show to all of our listeners. And Greg, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ken. Hi, Galen. I think for Galen and I, this would uh, classify as, you know, hash, hashtag life goals, um, getting, getting <laughs> you on as a guest. You, you kind of fit in the category of guests who need no introduction. So having said that, I was hoping we could actually get you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah. So um, I was trained as a microbiology undergrad at first, but uh, then fulfilled a lifelong dream to become a chiropractor, uh, trained at CMCC and graduated in 1990 and practiced for almost 15 years before becoming full-time research and uh, on and on and on. I'm now at the University of Alberta as a full professor, uh, where I am 75% research and the rest is essentially uh, administration and teaching. So that's, that's what I do in the day. That's my job. I'm a scientist. So, so going into your research, what, what can you tell us about what uh, kind of research your, your lab and your group is currently working on? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to try to answer it maybe just in a little bit of a, a superficial way at first to give you an overview. Uh, it's, it's a large group. I actually share a lab called the Rehabilitation Robotics Lab with another colleague, Martin Ferguson Pell. And together we might have 30 to 50 people in the lab, uh, depending if it's summertime or in, in other times of the year. So it, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of overlap as well. But on my end of things, and, and probably what most people are familiar with is a is a split between trying to figure out how it all works, whether that is the causes of back pain or musculoskeletal problems uh, or how manipulation works and uh, how it affects our patients. And that's kind of like the, the science-y end. Uh, we hope we make some discoveries and, and contribute to our, our knowledge. But in the meantime, we can't wait for those things to happen. They, they do take a long time. So we have another domain of how do we help people now? And that might not be so much understanding what's going on as finding things to just improve comfort, pain, disability, self-efficacy as, as we move forward to, to really trying to find a cure. And not too many people talk about a cure for back pain, but I think it is a possibility one day if we better understand you know, what causes it and such. So that's really what it boils down to. And then we can talk about specifics, this one domain of understanding what's going on with, with the spine. And then the other domain of how we help people in the net. That's fantastic. I mean, are there, are there, are there specific burning questions that you have with, with any of those topics that you, you know, that, that you really, you know, would love to have an answer to right away or questions that are still unanswered that you feel are really important to oh, answer? Yeah. I mean, I have questions still from when I was in practice and that's really what drove me into to research was, you know, getting a little taste of it and understanding that, you know, maybe, uh, as, as satisfying and gratifying as it is to help someone in front of you in practice, you know, the idea that you might be able to, to come up with knowledge that could help many, many people. Um, and that's where I, I sort of began my journey, realizing that there was so much we didn't know when someone walked through the door. If we could, uh, of your clinic, if, if we could make a, or I could make a contribution to understanding uh, a little bit better about how we could treat that person in a way that was best for them and gave them the, the results they wanted in as quick a possible time frame, then that, that's what it was all about. So I, 
I really came into this wanting to understand why some people got better and other people didn't. And I can still think back to the first slides I used to present on this way back in the day. You know, you take two people breaking the lawn. They look like they've had the same history. They're the same age. They're the same sex. Everything's the same. Their mechanism of injury. And, and one gets better with your treatment and one doesn't. And why is that? And uh, that's, that's been one of my driving questions is understanding who responds to care and why. And I think we've made a few dents into that. That's kind of on the the side of the lab that handles the mechanisms and things. Who are the responders and um, why do they respond when others don't? And uh, it, some have said this is really the holy grail of, of low back pain research. And I would have to agree that uh, if we can get a handle on that, I think it would be a major contribution to our understanding of what we do or what is done as clinicians or what needs to be done for people. As a, as a clinician listening to this, I, I'm, I'm obviously wanting more of that holy grail. <laughs> uh, can you leak anything for what you suspect are, are, are aspects that make patients either you know, good responders or, or not responders yeah. to, to care? You know, I used to be frustrated, right? You know, when you, you saw your colleagues and others researching things that were really well-defined, you'd think, wow, that, that, that would be a luxury, right, to know... Um, the cause of something like diabetes or what have you. But I think in the end, the, the fact that we don't know a lot about back pain and it's so pervasive in society and it affects so many people in such um, significant ways that it's really driven um, a lot of research into understanding musculoskeletal health. And I think compared to some conditions that you might um, consider like uh, common things like shoulder or elbow pain, back pain is really advanced in terms of what we're understanding. And yeah, there's been a lot of trials and um, some of them, you know, may not have been necessary, but I think as a whole, we've really moved the dial. Um, and, and that really gets us into the realm of understanding the, the whole person. And we always were trained that way. You know, I'll just sidebar here for a second. I used to teach a class at U of A that uh, is one where all the students registered in any healthcare program had to take this integrative healthcare course. And they would learn about what each other does and how to work in a team, et cetera. And you'd have respiratory therapists and physical therapists and dentists and, and you name it, they were there. And they'd each do a little presentation at the start of the course about what it was that uh, their profession did. And every one of them said, we treat the entire person. And it's amazing because, you know, how is it that we all treat the, the entire person, yet we're really not getting there or, you know, we only say that. And I think low back pain is really helping us understand what that whole person really is. You know, they're not just the, in the terms of biopsychosocial, but really taking on um, the, the different things in someone's lives, their experiences from the past, how they've handled pain, uh, what their culture is. I mean, you name it. This, these are really big factors. And, and sure, um, there are uh, mechanical things as well, but the way we used to think of them as siloed, you know, you were a biomechanical researcher or a neurological researcher or a psychological researcher. You know, we keep these things siloed at our peril. So I, I think we've really made great strides into trying to understand who these responders are by roping all of these different groups together and trying to understand how it interplays. Because it likely shifts from person to person. 
I think why someone responds isn't necessarily the same story as why the, the next person responds. They might be different, but hopefully there's something common in between them that we can grab hold of and, and understand this phenomenon a little bit more. And this is really, I feel like it's really evolving. And I, mean, I was listening to the um, Words Matter podcast and they were discussing contextual factors and, and we seem to really be shifting from a purely pathoanatomical approach to a biopsychosocial approach and understanding uh, you know, greater impacts more than just the, the, you know, the boo-boo on, on the spine. And uh, it sounds like that's, that's a real uh, important factor to consider. You know, in fact, with some of the work we've done, and I think we've got this as something to talk about later on, but, you know, with regulatory issues and, you know, what constitutes um, practice within the scope in your jurisdiction. You know, I was recently on a, a, a talk panel in Australia just after COVID began and the, the topic came up, you know, could it be that in the future, the way that we're now understanding words being so important, could it be that practitioners are held accountable for, for what they say as much as they're held accountable for, for what they may or may not do physically with, with patients in terms of adequate care or inadequate care? What about that way that you communicate your, your findings or some test result? So those are pretty important things. And it may be a while before we see that, but I think those who've always um, understood how important uh, relationships are and bedside manner, for lack of a better word, are really on the forefront of understanding the impact of contextual effects and, and really trying to squeeze from them all the best things that you can do to help your patient. Well, that's a perfect dovetail into our next question, which is that you published a couple of articles recently. One is uh, a recent one in the CMT on the use of internet analytics uh, by the College of Chiropractors of British Columbia, using a, a market review tool to audit registrants' websites. Uh, another paper published in June in CMT regarding misinformation about spam manipulation and boosting immunity. And it was an analysis of Twitter activity uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. So there's a theme here. And, and I was hoping you could uh, explain, like, how, how do you see the future of, future role of technology in chiropractic practice? And what, 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 can this, what does this mean for us in the future? You know, this is, I, I think, a really fascinating um, study into how research topics and research careers um, will change over time. You know, we've, I've been fortunate that I've been able to keep following some of those ideas we just talked about that came to me in practice. But of course, you know, as time goes on and careers evolve, you're keeping your eyes open for, for other things that, that you're interested in and may be important. And, um, and this was one of them. This was really something that came out of COVID. And, you know, it's a, a little bit of, wow, I'm sitting at home and um, fortunately, I'm not in a situation where uh, my kids are young uh, they've all grown up now, and uh, my wife and I are healthy. So not being able to go into the lab, you're thinking, well, I've got an opportunity here to sort of fill the gap. What could we be doing that we maybe should be getting around to that uh, we haven't been? So the, the chance to sort of be away from the lab a little bit, although, you know, forcibly, uh, gave me the chance to look broader. And one of the things I've always been interested in is um, – really the lack of our profession's ability to, to consume information in a way that, that, that helps drive the profession forward. And uh, this all began from a little desire to try to 
put forward an electronic health record that made sense for probably more than chiropractic, but you know, we do so much in a day that goes unrecorded. And here we are putting research money together and trying to fund this and struggling to keep things going and finding resources. And if we simply just wrote down, you know, and recorded electronically what it is we did in practice, you know, and every single day, there's so much gold there. There's so much to be discovered. You know, the, the, there's no doubt there are some really incredible things happening in practice. The, the things that patients tell us that have, have improved or changed with care. And it's sometimes hard to know if that's a one-off or, you know, maybe around the world, there's, there's, you know, 800 cases of what just happened. And if we suck those all together, we'd be really uh, opening up what we can do in a brand new way. But we're leaving that all on the table because we, we don't get it down. And it's, I think, largely a function of not being funded by governments. And, uh, you know, when you're funded by a government, there's a lot of accountability. Uh, you just have to look at any provincial health system and the checks and balances are not perfect, but they're there. So the fact that we've been off the books for that, I think, has really been detrimental to us uh, recording what we do. And in that way, we said, well, listen, I'm not going to change this overnight. What are some, some easy wins in this area of big data? Where is it that we could go look at some big data and understand if it indeed and does have impact on, on what we do as chiropractors? So there were three things that, that struck me right off the bat. Two of them were what you mentioned. We have a chance to look at some data from the College of Chiropractors of BC uh, with respect to regulatory there's also some new tools that um, I was made aware of and, and discovered in terms of assessing Twitter. And we, we use that as a massive database of what people think and are thinking about uh, musculoskeletal health and chiropractic. And then um, some new tools that allow us to dig through the entire healthcare literature and maybe pull out some ideas that are just sitting there and no one's really seen them yet because there's just so much there. It's hard to have a grasp of everything that's going on in the publication world. So yeah, out of COVID, suddenly there are three publications within um, a matter of months that really, I think, have changed some of the direction of what we're doing, realizing that traditionally, Traditionally, you know, I think when we talk about technology and chiropractic, everyone thinks about a device, you know, something they've got to buy and it's going to help with diagnosis or help with treatment. And, you know, it may be that there's a few reflex hammers left to discover in the world, but by and far, I think what technology utilization is going to mean for the profession is information utilization, collecting it and analyzing it and seeing what trends are there that we can take advantage of to help that person who walks through the door. And, uh, oh, I'm just going on and on. So you guys interrupt me. The, the concept of big data, I mean, is that something we can own as a profession? Or like, can we drive that and make that a reality? Or is that something that's- Oh, I think so. And you know, it's, it's not easy to do, right? And it, uh, you two and others may have heard me talk about this before, but there, there may be an advantage to our, hesitancy in, 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 in taking this on. Clearly, you know, we've heard of examples where professions and hospitals or things are early in the game and they've adopted a, a electronic health record and they're stuck. It's incompatible or for various reasons. And then they've got big issues about moving forward to a new system. 
And we've got a clean slate. Like we can really do some interesting things having watched what's transpired over the last few years and decades and making good decisions about how to go forward in a way that is sustainable. But, um, you know, you know, doing that is, is, is tough. It requires uh, some resources, some forethought, and it's, it's not an easy thing to accomplish. But, you know, if we can consider that, you know, we're getting it down anyways, that uh, we just change that somewhat to a bit of a different format. We're not really making new work for ourselves. We're just modifying what we're doing already. I think, you know, there's real potential here. You were saying, you know, what is it for us? You know, there's just not answering some questions and helping our patients. We've got a, a treasure trove of data that other people can benefit from that, that might actually be a, a monetizable commodity. You know, I've hypothesized in various talks that if we're the first ones to pull this MSK data together, um, you know, other professions, other groups might just simply buy access to it. And, you know, imagine that, uh, similar to some things in Denmark and other places where associations just don't collect dues from you. They actually create initiatives that create revenue for the profession and become self-sustaining. And it would be entirely possible with an electronic health record to imagine such a situation like that. Oh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So, you know, kind of keeping in, in our theme of technology and communication, um, I think I can safely say that you're, you're one of the most important influencers in the profession, whether it's through, through your research, through your, through your publications, uh, you maintain a, you know, a pretty active social media presence, or, or as a speaker. But for a lot of researchers, knowledge translation to clinicians and to other stakeholders is it's kind of like learning a foreign language. And frequently they don't, you know, they don't think about it until after they've, they've finished publishing a, a paper. Where, where do you see the role of researchers and the, their work line in, in helping to, to influence clinician behavior? Oh, okay. You got me on a topic that I feel pretty passionate about these days. Because there's a lot of talk about, you know, what can researchers be doing better? Yeah. for for getting that message across and i think there's a there's a tremendous amount of um responsibility that researchers have to take in that area and we, we can talk about that but i think the we've been scapegoated a little bit i think that you know back when i was i, I remember going to college and thinking you know wouldn't it be cool if uh you know learning all this someone discovered how it all worked and you know, it wasn't a fight anymore. And there was this research that you could just throw down a paper at some cocktail party and go there, let's quit arguing. You know, we're done. It's good. And you know, that was kind of the mantra 20 years ago. You know, if we put the research effort together and we came up with studies and you know, it would solve all the problems the profession had and we're there, you know, we've made some very substantial contributions and by no means is the fight over. Don't let me give the wrong impression that, you know, we're done and we don't need to do this, but we've made some, some important impacts, but yet they're not really trickling through. And I, I think my thinking now, and I know not everyone will agree with it, but I think it's maybe just a, a little further along the curve than, than where some of my colleagues are at, either in research or administration or oversight of the profession. And that is that like the patient who is multifaceted and has physical problems, uh, uh, contextual influences, psychological impacts, 
the whole idea of getting knowledge into practice is just not on the shoulders of researchers. It has to be everyone's responsibility. And, you know, we're seeing uh, how clinicians are taking this on now. And I think um, they're being very active with social media groups and getting papers uh, shared and, and talking about what it means for their practice. We've seen um, guidelines much more come into play and their, their influence. And of course, CCGI, you know that. But, you know, we're missing out uh, sometimes from regulators, uh, making sure that the most um, advanced things that we couldn't be doing in practice are reflected in what's happening in that jurisdiction. And that goes for educational um, institutions as well. You know, there's a big lag between um, someone publishing a set of papers like the Lancet papers and getting that into a curriculum. So we've got a lot to do together. And I think, um, hey, you know, researchers, you're not putting out infographics with enough colors in them. That's not going to solve the problem. You know, it's all taking responsibility of trying to do the best thing for the patient as soon as possible and as safe as possible and as efficacious as possible. And I like to think of it as the airline industry, right? I mean, there's regulators that control the safety of things, but there's a lot of onus on pilots to do it safely. There's a, there's a lot of um, responsibility in the companies to, to, to get that communication going between what the company has to do, what the regulator says. And all of that is, is for the passenger. And for us, it's, it's the patient. And I really see that it's a multidimensional. And I, I'm pushing back strongly these days when people are pointing fingers at us saying, hey, why don't you do some more positive research? Or why don't you do research you know, that affects me in practice on Monday? And uh, we all have to take share to that and say, yeah, that research is out there. And the onus is on you sometimes to make sure that you do do it on Monday. But we're listening as well and, and remembering that it is important that not just our ideas drive where research goes and not just the ideas of where clinicians drive research, but mostly what's important to patients. And if, if we set our research agendas based on what patients need the most, uh, and to do that, it would be nice to have an electronic health record to understand that, then, then we're, we're golden. Do you have any suggestions as to how, you know, researchers and regulators and, well, and, you know, clinicians and, and even patients should be working to, you know, do you see any quick steps that we could be, we could be taking besides, like you said, an electronic health record? Well, I think social media has been a big help. I mean, you know, chiropractic practice tends to be isolated. Um, you don't get uh, larger healthcare center environments where, people are constantly talking and discussing and um, there's a committee form that is, you know, what, you know, are we going to move this into usual care and how do we improve on our best practices? So unfortunately, I think the case still exists where even today you can take the knowledge you've, you've gained from your training and probably retire doing that same thing. Although I think it has changed quite a bit. You, you might not find your practice as vibrant um, or as well attended if you were to just sit on your laurels for, for the rest of your career. I think you, the person down the street is likely doing something better and you better follow suit. And I think that's one way of driving it forward is unfortunately some of the stick, not so much the carrot, that the other person in practice is doing something and I better keep up. Uh, my patients are talking about this thing. What is that? But I think one of the, the 
biggest problems we have is that we're just not together often enough to, to hear what's going on and what's working and who, who did this and how did it help someone. And I think social media has really helped that way. But we've got a long way to go. And I think um, this idea of how you implement things into practice is, is a problem everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, I think it has to be a balance between self-motivation and professional motivation and, and professional regulation. There, there is a bit of a stick in there as well as hopefully a lot of carrot. And I think if our regulators keep up with, you know, the things that represent best practice and, and we can maybe let go of some of the things. The beautiful thing about research is it's going to create so many more opportunities for us. But, you know, there's going to be some casualties along the way, but the balance sheet will clearly be in the positive from having gone down this research road. But the wins that we get, you know, there will be a, a few losses and, and the regulators, I think, have to pick up on that. With the trend of like integrated knowledge translation being more of a, an expectation of funders and, and, and I'd imagine journals, do, do you think social media will help with that kind of grassroots involvement of, of clinicians and research and kind of spurring uh, clinical questions and, and more engagement at the beginning of, of a research process? Yeah, I think so. I, I think most funding agencies now, um, you know, require multiple things that, you know, you have to be working in a, in a team that is made up of a diverse group of individuals and that should always include patients. And, you know, early on when those requirements came in, we didn't know what to do, right? A lot of people said, Oh, well, okay. You know, I invite this patient to come to this meeting and there I'm done, but meaningful contributions from clinicians and patients. We, we have a number of studies involving glad back, um, a package of, of education and exercise that, that was developed at uh, University of Southern Denmark with our Danish colleagues. And we've brought that to Canada. And uh, putting that forward really takes a lot of input from patients because, you know, although it's been successful overseas, bringing it here to a new culture in a new healthcare system really is a bit different. It's, it's putting it into a new language as well. So having meaningful contributions from this group of patients or a group of clinicians on an ongoing basis. It's just the status quo now. Um, the thing is, it, it, it's a long arc, right? You know, you can start that thing today and you might not see the results till uh, five years from now. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that you're a, you're a factory producing work and not every product you make is a bestseller. But overall, our research community is growing and very high quality and very effective. And we've got many more good products than we do failures. And I think if, we, if between social media and hopefully um, whatever the conference scene turns into with COVID, you know, we use these ways to stay connected with each other. I, I think the research is just becoming better and better aligned with what patients need. I've, I've got a couple more questions. I, I always find it interesting to talk to researchers after they've taken a sabbatical. And you did a sabbatical a couple of years ago, I believe, right? Yeah, 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 in 2014. I was like, wow, was that that long ago now? Wow. Yeah. I, I always yeah. find it interesting talking to, to, to researchers after they've done a sabbatical because it's usually a time for kind of, it can be a bit of a time for regeneration, a little bit of time to reflect and to start asking yourself those, you know, some big questions again. What 
what types of things did you find yourself thinking about or working on that uh, coming out of your sabbatical that you, you hadn't necessarily seen when you were going in? Yeah, you know, the sabbatical is an interesting thing. And I think it's really misunderstood by a lot of people. It's probably thought of by most as a holiday. No. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm taking a break, right? Because yeah. that's the way it usually gets described. But, you know, back in the day, th- this was at a time when, you know, early days of Italian universities and the beginning of higher education. And, you know, there wasn't really a, many ways to get information. So what you do is you go on a sabbatical and take some dangerous trip to the next country. And hopefully you'd come back alive with some new learnings that you would then teach your colleagues. And that's kind of the way that uh, we spread information around from university to university. So sabbatical was really a critical way that um, universities didn't go in different directions. And, oh, you've discovered this, but we've discovered that. And I think um, that that was the mindset that I took into my sabbatical. Uh, you know, what is it that I can go out and learn that would be helpful to me and, and hopefully to my department as well, my university and, and my, my colleagues. And, you know, that really made an impact. It, it, it changed my life because you're so focused on getting your your enterprise, your research enterprise up and going, that it's hard to look outside sometimes. And um, in a nutshell, that's what happened to me. You know, we, we were able, fortunately, very fortunate to, to go to a number of places that opened my eyes to what was going on in different ways, not just in research, but how you handle things as a team, how research is performed by some groups compared to others. And it's in a little way, and like I say, I... I know there's a lot of performance pressure and anxiety in COVID, uh, a lot of expectations to, to do some things that you might not have been able to do because you're at home and it's not fair when you've got kids and other things. But somewhat um, COVID's been a bit of that, that sabbatical for, for me. And what I've been reflecting on, and I know some of my colleagues have, is looking at that 10-year horizon or so and wondering, you know, what is it that you can do that, not because you need to have a legacy, but what is it that would be most impactful and beneficial that you could leave the profession with? And one of the things I'm really proud of and happy to say that we've gotten off the ground very successfully is Carl, um, the Chiropractic Academy of, of Research Leadership. And, you know, that group is is really the future of the profession. And I think people forget how isolating it can be, not just to be a chiropractor, but a chiropractic researcher, someone's interested in these questions. There's likely no one else in your department or university looking at this stuff. And when you think of most research departments as a team of cancer scientists or a team of of what have you, there's no teams like that in most places. So seeing these people, these young, talented, early career researchers come together and find fellowship and meaning in um, just the safety of being able to discuss uh, their career issues and where they can go next and the problems they're having and how they help solve it for each other. You know, we just can't afford to lose anyone who takes this step into research. And, uh, you know, we're now even talking about expanding the program into um, using the Carl Fellows to help others um, because we just can't take in everyone who's who's um, worthy of, of a program like this so i think what sabbaticals or rest times are are now for me 
very different from what it was <clears throat> five or six years ago. You're sort of looking at, you know, what, what can I leave that someone else can pick up on or that would be beneficial to the profession? And uh, you never know, and, and maybe none of it will. But um, that's where I think a lot of us of the same generation of researchers are looking now is to say, um, it's going to be time to put a cap on it soon. And how do we do that? As, as you kind of continue to go through your, your research career, and, and I think, you know, what, what we've been hearing and, and what anyone who, who watches your publication list uh, would see is there's, there's been an evolution in, in terms of, of, you know, the things that you look at, starting very biomechanical, but now increasingly looking at all kinds of topics and, and how they relate to, to patients. What's been the most surprising thing as you've gone through your career? What's, what, what has surprised you the most? The thing that comes to my mind first is how, how much I learn from my patients. Um, at the start, you know, the, the questions they would have. And that, that's really what informed my research questions. But that, that's been, now that I don't see patients, I, that's been replaced by my, my students. And it's really amazing how someone who you think you're bringing through this, this process and you're, you're trying to train them in a certain way, you know, they, they just come with a different insight because of their training prior to or their background or their culture. And it's just mind boggling sometimes that something will come out of their mouth and you'll think, I have never thought of that. Or that is a fantastic idea. And, you know, really being humbled all the time by the fact that, uh, you know, you're just someone trying to, trying to tie it all together. And, and maybe there's some innovation that, that you create or, or stumble upon. But, uh, you know, if you sort of listen and keep your ears open, you know, there's so many good ideas. And I think we've probably all had that experience, you know, where, um, oh, I don't even know how to describe this perfectly, but, you know, you, you can be the best at what you do uh, as a career or whatever, but then you pick up a hobby, right? And you get really passionate about it. And uh, you see something in that, that when you're talking to the professional who, who actually does that, they go, wow, you know, only a noob could have seen that, right? Because once you get so far down the road, you sort of become accustomed to certain ways of thinking and everything else. And sometimes that new person who is totally blank slate uh, and naive says or sees or thinks something that is completely transformational. And I think that's been the most interesting thing in research for me is being floored by, by what the people I work with have to say and think and do. That's super cool. I'm out of questions. Galen, do you have anything else? I feel like I could, uh, <laughs> I could keep shooting questions for, for hours, but I'm going to stop uh, for the sake of, <laughs> of Greg and, and our listeners. But, um, but uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Oh, this was a pleasure. And so great that you're doing this because, you know, this counts as the social media and, and other ways of contributing to, to knowledge translation and knowledge absorption and, and all of that. So thank you for doing this for having such a broad spectrum of, of people on the, the podcast and, and keep it going. And if there's anything that we can do to help with people from, well, just people that we can help identify as future guests or whatever, that would be really lovely. Oh, that's great. 
thank you, thank you so much, Greg. We we really appreciate your time. Uh, it's, everything you you talk about is always of great interest to to both Galen and I. So, uh, thanks thanks so much for joining us, and and to our listeners, thanks thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>